A World Airways DC-10 is landing at the Logan International Airport, but landing comes with some difficulties. What caused this heavy DC-10 to overrun the runway? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And today we have... My dad. Oh, hello. I am Al. <laughs> Nick's dad. <laughs> he's uh, he's along for the ride today. He's going to, because he's in town, so he's going to uh, participate in this episode, which is actually, it'll be kind of cool. Yeah, we've talked about you a couple of times, not naming the airline that you work for, but he does work for an airline, so he has a lot more experience in certain subjects than we do. Yes. Do you want to talk about your aviation experience and your involvement okay. we can talk about my aviation experience sure okay i've i've, I've been around aviation since i was 16 started uh, with uh, flight training at 16 in belgium so it equates to about uh, almost 34 years now nice being a mechanic for 25 and i have seen a little bit of everything between general aviation and uh, uh large aircraft so yeah up to airlines of course yep Nice. So, some of everything. He's uh, very avid in the aviation community here in Colorado and becoming avid in new home state of Oregon. Yes. So, yeah, he's very familiar with a lot of people in all different facets of aviation here. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, you're boosting me a little too much. But. Well, but, it, okay. no, but it's true. <laughs> it's because everybody knows you. You walk around <laughs> Centennial Airport thing. with Al and you can't get five feet without someone saying hi. And you take off, and all the controllers already know you just by your accent. That's not, yeah, no. <laughs> it's kind of true. There's a few that do. So we want to say hi real quick to our new patrons. There's quite a few. We've had three new ones this week, I think. So welcome to our new patrons, Will, Danielle, and Kate. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much for being patrons and supporting us. Yeah. We are officially going to be having two separate Zoom calls for our flight crew tier this month because y'all live on separate sides of the world. So, but yeah, it's good. You know, we have like the best listeners. We really do. They're doing uh, wonders for us now. They are. We get just the nicest messages in the last like two weeks. We've had the nicest emails and messages and, you know, we get these really nice messages from our new patrons and stuff and we really appreciate it. It's, yeah. It's really cool. Thank you very much. We are now booked through December. Yeah. Oh, God. So. <laughs> For episodes. These people come out of the woodworks and they, they start throwing recommendations at us. They go, I don't know if this is on your schedule, but I really kind of want to hear about this one or this one, or I want to hear you do you know this one. And, and lately we've been getting double recommendations. So we've been getting recommendations that people have already suggested. And yeah. So that's kind of cool too. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's cool. You'll hear and, it eventually. Yes, you will. And. <laughs> Sorry that it's so far in advance for some of them, but, you know, that's, that's how it is. That's how it is. On that note, thank you to Joseph from Trinidad and Tobago for recommending this episode. Also one of our very avid listeners. Yes. I think you had mentioned is. it to me before. Yeah, he yes. works, uh, he's working on, re he's part of a team restoring an L-1011. That's right. That's what you're talking about. That's excellent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I was just thinking about it, and via the transitive property, this entire podcast is technically Al's fault. House yes. fault. <laughs> so you can yeah. thank Hal for that. Yeah, aviation. Okay. <laughs> Aviation's in my life entirely because of him, and I really appreciate it. And so this is this definitely grew from that. So there we go. So yeah. with all of that, what are we covering today, Nick? So today we are covering World Airways Flight 30. This one happened on January 23rd of 1982. 
This was a Douglas DC-10-30CF. So it was a, a heavy version of the DC-10, intended to have uh, longer range capabilities. It was equipped with an extra center landing gear on in the main landing gear portion to allow it to carry heavier loads. The tail number for this airplane was November 113 Whiskey Alpha. And this flight was scheduled to be from Oakland, California to Boston with a stopover at Newark, New Jersey. The captain for our flight today was Peter Langley. He was 58 years old. I couldn't find hours for any of the crew anywhere in the reports or anything. So we're going to go off only what I know. The first officer was Donald Hertzfeld. He was 38 years old. And the flight engineer was William Roger. He was 56 years old. On the flight from Oakland to Newark, the captain monitored the half-hour weatherly reports for the East Coast airports. This is in January, so they get snow frequently in the Northeast. And it's cold. And it's very cold. Just before landing in Newark, the braking conditions at the airport had been reported as fair to poor, and the taxiway braking was reported as nil, or not non-existent. There was no braking action, period. Oh. The flight landed on the 8,600-foot-long runway at Newark without issue. During the layover at Newark, the captain checked the weather and found that the conditions were deteriorating at both alternate airports that they had selected for their Boston flight. The alternates were Bradley and Newark. Bradley is, there we go. Oh, is there Hartford's we go. Yep. airport, and then they, the other alternate was to come back to Newark. Because of this, the captain then refiled their flight plan with JFK and Philadelphia as their alternate airports. This meant that the flight had to take on an extra 10,000 pounds of fuel. The captain recalculated the weight and balance, and then they were on their way. The flight was to have three flight crew, nine cabin crew, and 200 passengers for a total of 212 people on board. The captain was to be the pilot flying for this leg, and the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring. So where were they going? Boston. Boston? It is a 50-minute flight. From? Newark. Newark. Okay. Very just, short on a big airplane. Just making sure. Yes. My brain was like, there's a lot of airports there. Yes, there are. <laughs> yes. This. So but, they're going from... Newark, which is in New Jersey, yes. to Boston. To Boston, okay. yes. Very, very short flight on a DC-10. The flight departed Newark at 6.48 p.m., so in the dark. At 6.59 p.m., the flight was at 17,000 feet, their cruising altitude, when they made initial contact with Boston Air Route Traffic Control Center. Brilliant. Yes. <laughs> so very, very short. This was 11 minutes after takeoff. At 7.03 p.m., the air route traffic controller transferred them to the Boston Approach Controller. So within a few minutes, they were already on approach. The controller vectored the flight by radar from the Boston VOR to an outbound track parallel to the runway 15 right VOR approach course and set the airplane to make a left turn to final. So all kind of complicated, but... They, they were actually flying beyond the airport, and then they were going to make basically a, a handful of left turns parallel to the runway and left turn in for a VOR approach to runway 15 right. A non-precision approach. Yes, specifically a non-precision approach. I find that interesting, given it's dark and it's cold, but... Is the it's not snowing, is it? It uh, actually is. Oh well. <laughs> well, it's actually it's more of almost rain. It's like freezing rain. Oh, that's also not great. No, we'll get to visibility as we get closer to the airport because they specifically didn't say what the weather report was given to the flight on their approach, but they do explain about the time that the crew found the airport or saw it. Oh, okay. 
Yes. The tower had instructed the approach controller to space inbound traffic at seven-mile intervals because of the weather and the runway conditions at Boston. The approach controller then asked the flight if they had received information X-ray, their ATIS information, or Automated Terminal Information System, and they had told them that they had, as well as the Field Condition Report 6. It's Again, I didn't find what that said specifically, but the pilot stated that he had received both reports. Do you have that? Field Condition Report 6 was a breaking action report from a previous flight. Field Condition Report 6 was from a 727 reporting fair to poor breaking. Okay. So that was a, a breaking condition report. and the Landing on runway 15 right. 15 right. The pilot had stated that he had received both reports. So he was right. familiar with what was going on. We'll get to a little bit more about those later because those are actually pretty key. Great. The captain noted as the airplane was descending through 6,000 feet that the ram air temperature was higher than the temperature which would require the use of anti-icing equipment and that there was no icing observed on the airplane. Can you explain a little bit about ram air temperature? Do you know? Ram air? Oh, you're talking about more like the, the yeah. ram ice. Yeah, ram, the, yeah, the ram ice. Ram ice or ram air or... Yeah, okay. So <laughs> it was listed in the report as ram air temperature. Okay, yeah, that's that's an old old terminology. It is, you know, they're, yes. they're they're kind of improved on that. But anyway, it's just the the icing because of rain or any kind of precipitation or even humidity in the air sometimes that it isn't necessarily uh, precipitation when you're going through in the air at a certain speed because there's a cold effect created, uh, and that can cause ice buildup, especially on the surfaces of impact. So the fo- the leading edges of wings. Uh, nose leading edges of tail yep and that creates an aerodynamic change of the surfaces that is not favorable so that's what they're calling about so because of the of the, the the movement of the, the airplane the forward movement and impacting all this humidity it creates an icing layer on any surfaces that it impacts yeah so that's basically what they're talking about and they they, they did sounded like they did not have visible eyes which is something they can observe from the cockpit yeah and that they determine also sometimes the usage of of the icing i think that the um, procedures have changed at any time to have humidity they do run anti-ice anyway and maybe at that time they weren't i'm not familiar with how the operation was in 1982 yeah i'm not entirely familiar with anyways with what world airways procedures were but they did say that they were the ram air temperature was higher than the temperature that which would, would require them yeah. that would then which would require them to use anti icing equipment which makes sense and they didn't observe any icing so they figured they were good to go and that's probably true then in yes. this case yeah it was actually the captain continued to descend using the auto throttle system engaged but manual flight controls so the autopilot was actually disengaged this was a common practice for the captain and was suggested by the airplane's manufacturer so Douglas and was accepted by World Airways, the airline. The flight was cleared down to 4,000 feet, at which point the captain called for flaps to be extended to 22 degrees, and a speed of 164 knots was to be selected on the auto throttles. When the first officer attempted to adjust the auto throttle setting to 164 knots, the display for the selection simply read Alpha, meaning that it was not achievable by the auto throttle because the computer determined that the setting was below the 30% margin above the airplane's power-off stall speed, or VSO, which the crew had calculated, so this surprised the crew. The first officer adjusted the autothrottle to the minimum allowable by the computer, which was 174 knots. 
and the and the airplane stabilized at 176 knots. So now they're they're moving 12 knots faster than they were intending. The captain noted that this was 10 knots higher. The setting was 10 knots higher than desired, but accepted this speed difference. The captain selected 35 degrees for final approach for the flaps, citing his assessment of the winds along the final approach and the flight profile for a non-precision approach. For this approach, the captain was expecting to use 150 knots for VRUF plus 5, or their approach speed, basically. However, this once again displayed alpha on the autothrottle selection when it was selected. The autothrottle was adjusted again to the minimum allowable by the computer, which was 158 knots, and the airplane stabilized 160 knots, which is 10 knots above their desired approach speed, 10 knots above VREF. At 7.20 p.m., the approach controller asked the flight about their winds aloft, and the flight reported that at 4,000 feet, the winds were 226 degrees at 65 knots. Two minutes earlier, another inertial-equipped airplane ahead of them had reported winds at 2,000 feet as 197 degrees at 60 knots. So winds were actually pretty high aloft. However, that said, Flight 30 did not encounter any significant turbulence. But this was a pretty significant crosswind as they were trying to approach the airport. At 7.32 p.m., the flight was approaching 3,000 feet, and the captain was maintaining a 14-degree right drift correction in order to maintain the inbound VOR course. The approach controller then passed off the flight to the tower controller. The first officer reported to the tower that they were approaching the final approach fix. This is a point on the, on the non-precision approach path, basically. The tower controller cleared the flight to land on runway 15 right and informed the flight that the surface wind was at 180 at 3 knots. So, really calm, pretty calm winds on the ground. After the flight crossed the final approach fix, the captain began descending down to 780 feet, or the minimum descent altitude for Boston. So, 780 feet was as low as they were allowed to descend in with no visibility. Yeah, right, until they could see the runway. Right. Refer to a bunch of our previous yeah. episodes? <laughs> Just yes. search MDA on our website, you'll find it. Yes. It's also the minimum to avoid any obstacles on the approach path. That's usually why MDA is why MDA is. Yes. So you don't hit stuff and right. go boom. Yeah, if you can't see, don't descend below that altitude because there's things in your way, basically. Good call. Let's go. <laughs> As the flight reached 100 feet above MDA, the first officer stated that he could see the ground. So pretty much good to go. As they reached the MDA, the captain had the runway lights in sight off the left side and continued descending to 500 feet, where they then leveled off. They could see the city lights to the right side, once at MDA, but straight ahead of them, visibility was low. However, as they were about two nautical mile final, the visibility increased, and they were able to see all of the approach lights. The VASI, or the Vertical Approach Slope Indicator lights, showed red-red, meaning that they were below the glide slope. Uh-oh. But they were, they were maintaining 500 feet. So at this point, they just continued at that level flight at 500 feet until they intercepted the glide slope. The remainder of the approach was carried out normally. The airplane touched down on the runway at 7.35 p.m. and 57 seconds. The captain immediately realized that something was a little off about the landing when he noted the softness of, land of the landing gear upon touchdown, and he noted that the spoilers did not deploy immediately. This was a sign that the wheels were not spinning. Uh-oh. The nose wheel then lowered to the ground, and the reverse thrust was applied, at which point the spoilers did deploy, 
The captain applied full pressure to the brake pedals and maintained this along with full thrust reversers. He called out, no braking, and again 14 seconds later stated, no braking. He said that out loud in the cockpit. I would say that that's not a good sign. That's not a good sign. Very not a good sign. Yeah. He noted that he did have directional control of the airplane, however, and with the end of the runway fast approaching, he knew that they would be in a worse situation if they went through the approach lighting for runway 33 left, the opposite end of the runway. So he steered the airplane to the left to avoid them. Just before this, the first officer notified the tower that they would be going off the end of the runway. Oh, well, at least they knew. Yes, at least they were able to notify. They were able to say, hey, just so you know. <laughs> just so you we're know. We're not going to be able to stop. Yeah, we're not stopping. And that goes into the water, doesn't it? Yes, basically. Oh. At 7.36 p.m. and 40 seconds, four seconds after the captain's steering input, the airplane went over the seawall and plummeted in into the Boston Harbor. The tower was unable to see the flight fall off of the end of the runway, but received the final transmission from the first officer, and after confirmation from some of the other controllers of the location of the airplane on their radar, the tower supervisor notified the emergency crews about the accident, and the airport was subsequently closed to air traffic. Emergency personnel, the emergency crews, immediately responded. The aircraft had come to rest in, in the shallow waters of the Boston Harbor, just off the end of the runway. Thankfully, about 110 feet left of the runway center line, and midway between the approach light pier and the large granite stone blocks that lined an embankment. So actually, they found themselves in a best-case situation. They put the airplane in the best place, because they didn't go through the approach lights, which could have done a lot of damage. A lot of damage. And they also didn't hit the very large uh, stone blocks on the other side of them, which could have also done a lot of damage. They had fallen about 10 feet down a 30-foot-long gravel and mud slope to the shoreline. As the airplane had fallen into the muddy waters, the two wing-mounted engines were flooded and shut down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the tail-mounted center engine, however, was still in full reverse thrust. The nose and cockpit section separated from the rest of the fuselage. So my question is, I don't know how long the airplane maintained reverse thrust. Because without the cockpit attached to the airplane, how could they shut it down? That's the problem. Yes. Oh, no. There's no report on how... I didn't find anything that specifically said how long it, re it maintained reverse thrust. I mean, you can see in the pictures that it's still... The cowling was still open for reverse thrust. Yeah. That third one in on the top. Uh-huh. Yeah. You can see that it's still open for reverse thrust, but it... I don't know how long it was on. Great. Mm hmm That's nice. Which probably made even the rescue difficult. Yes, yeah, you probably. Get near well, when engine. you're next to that, it's blowing a wall of air out yeah. the sides of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they're standing right next to it, so it shut down at some point. Yep. Well, yeah. There are procedures even by by the fire department to shut yeah. it down, but they're supposed I am not to familiar. I know there is a procedure that they know how to use, but I, I I'm not familiar. And Again, in 1982, it was a little different. Yeah. I mean, the best thing they could do was try to flood it. Yeah. But Just I'm not even sure they could do that. Just push a bunch of water through it. Yeah. Just like Qantas Flight 32. Yes. yes. The water was about four feet deep at the deepest exit point of the airplane, which was by the 4R, the aft right door, where the emergency slide had been deployed. It was only about two feet deep by the right wingtip and the shore, uh, where they managed to actually, there was only four foot... Uh, the wingtip was only four feet away from the actual shoreline itself. So it proved that the rear doors were the easiest way for them to actually evacuate. Yeah. They opened the other doors and determined that was maybe not the best course of action. Nah, really? <laughs> yeah. 
Of the 212 people on board, 174 passengers, three cabin crew, and two flight crew were not injured at all. Not surprising. They just went off the end of the runway. Right. 19 passengers, five cabin crew were minorly injured, and then two passengers and one flight crew were seriously injured, and then two passengers were never found. Hmm. And they were presumed to have perished in the accident, likely by drowning. What? <laughs> they may have left the front side of the airplane. Oh, maybe. If you look at the pictures on our website, you can see that the front part, like the cockpit, is just um gone. Yeah. It yeah, disappeared. It, it fell into the water. Yeah, there's a, there's a hole, and I can see where some passengers might unfortunately have been uh, yeah. thrown into the water. Yep, and they mm-hmm. were never found. Um, and actually, the top, the very top right picture actually does show the cockpit, how they actually found it. I think they managed to get it out of there pretty quickly by boat. But the very top right picture there is the picture that's in the report. It's just kind of surprising because the water wasn't very deep. At, like, at any point. They were no. really close to the shore. So it's kind of weird that they couldn't find the two people. But if they yes. were somehow unconscious. They may have been dragged out you can, by the you tides. Can, you can drown in six inches of water. So they may have that, been dragged that up. That I'm not so, so worried about. It's that they weren't found. Yeah. Even because I mean, they were right off the end of the airport, mm-hmm. and you know, fire and rescue were there pretty fast. It's just surprising to me that they just wouldn't have seen them at all. But it, they could have been swept out to sea. It's not you know not heard of. Right. So I just thought it was a little surprising. Is all. This investigation was performed by the NTSB. Which, in case you're new here and or live under a rock, stands for the National Transportation Safety Board. Oh, finally somebody told me that. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what that stands for. Both black boxes were recovered and were sent to the NTSB's lab in Washington, D.C. for analysis, where they had to be unspooled and dried out since they were exposed to water. That's kind of weird because the tail wasn't... I, I don't know. I don't know Completely. where. Do you know where maybe they're... when they sprayed the engines? I don't know. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Do you and know the doors where they're mounted in the DC-10? No. No. Okay. I can guess, but I'm not yeah, sure. They're usually in the tail section of most airplanes, but I don't know. For the record, this would not happen with today's digital black boxes, as they have much stricter requirements for waterproof standards. Also, yes. they're not tape. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, that so. too. Yeah. We have covered a few runway excursions before, and there are many potential causes. To see if they could maybe rule out a few before going to the more obvious one, investigators checked the maintenance logs of the aircraft and found two uncorrected system discrepancies. First, the APU was not operative. Not a big deal, and investigators ruled it as insignificant. Yeah, uh, I mean, it just... They probably wouldn't have been running the APU anyway on landing, so... Mm -mm. so... But the second system that was inoperative was the number one auto throttle and speed control system. The number two system was operating and could be used for auto throttle control, except for during total automatic landing mode. Now, let's go to the more obvious potential cause, the lovely Boston weather. Yep. At the time of the approach, weather was low ceiling, low visibility, light rain, and foggy. It just surprises me they put them on a a VOR when... Visibility wasn't very great. Fun fact, this airport, this runway specifically, did not have an instrument landing system approach. But did they have a runway that this did was, have one? At the time, I think this was the longest runway. And also, per winds, this was the best choice. Okay. Well, the winds were really calm. Anyway. Yes, the yeah. winds were really calm. It was also the only runway available, which I will get to later. Ah, okay. Yes. Well, 
that makes sense now. <laughs> yep. It's cold, it's wet, and you can't see anything. However, temperatures were above freezing, so it couldn't have been all bad, right? Well, but they were just at a report of, you know, breaking action to low to, what was it? Really low. For okay. to, fair to poor. Yep. Fair to poor, thank you. So, in other words, just because it's above freezing doesn't mean crap. So temperatures before then had actually been colder, below freezing. So even though it was technically warmer at the time of landing, the ground was cold, wet, covered with snow, topped with, quote-unquote, a layer of glazed ice. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. So investigators... good if you're a baker, but not on... <laughs> <laughs> I prefer glaze on my donuts, not on my <laughs> runway aviation, no. yeah. <laughs> oh my Glaze is better on donuts, not on runways. So investigators listened to the CVR while watching the FDR data to understand the landing from the cockpit. The crew flew in with 35 degrees of flaps, and their airspeed was being controlled by the auto throttle speed control, but was 10 knots higher than the desirable approach speed. They were on the glide path, stabilized, and crossed the threshold normally, but from there, things went wonky. The... Air run was extended, and after flaring, the plane touched down 2,800 feet past the displaced threshold, Ooh. 1,800 feet further than the marked touchdown point. Ooh. That's a long ways. That is a long ways. They floated ways. for a while. Yes. A lot more than they thought. <clears throat> Leaving 6,390 feet to stop. Which in normal conditions should have been enough. But yes, obviously. way more than yep. enough. But here was not enough. I will talk about it. Well, and even that, it's not. These airplanes actually fly really fast. The DC-10s... Uh, were designed with a tail that was a little small, so they always approached a little faster. Mm -hmm. uh, probably yeah. even faster than the 27 that had landed before him. Yes, True. probably. Yeah, the captain had actually stated when he was interviewed that he thought they had touched down 1,000 to 1,500 feet past the threshold. So he thought he touched down within a pretty normal range of landing. He didn't know. He didn't know. Well, all the markings were probably covered anyway. They probably so they couldn't were, yeah. see yep. the, the, the runway markings, possibly some lighting, but it, they probably had some difficulty yeah, exactly. gauging that too, I imagine. Yes, yep. and they didn't have distance to go markers at the time yet either. That, nope. yeah. so. The flight data recorder showed that the crew used every tool in their arsenal to stop the plane, but they were still at 49 knots at the end of the runway. What the FDR was able to show, though, is that despite the fact that the crew gave it all, the, all they had, their braking power wasn't what it should have been. So investigators decided to tackle three different angles. The runway surface, the flight crew's decisions, and some much bigger picture issues that will actually be addressed during recommendations. First, the runway. I mentioned that temperatures before the approach were sub-freezing. By that, I mean it was between 2 and 20 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 17 to negative 7 degrees Celsius, for the previous two days. Oh. And it takes time for any kind of road or runway to warm up from that, especially when temperatures were still just 38 degrees Fahrenheit or 3 degrees Celsius at the time of the accident. So there's still going to be ice oh, yeah. on the runway. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Especially in the dark. Yeah. The snow and rain w that was falling throughout the day was still freezing upon contact with surfaces, making a layer of ice on top of the hard-packed snow. But Massachusetts Port Authority did implement its snow plan the day before, meaning they were periodically closing the runways for plowing and sanding. You know, normal snow ops. And they did this at 5 p.m. the evening of the accident. Afterwards, the duty ops supervisor and airline pilot rep of the snow committee both took a four-wheel drive vehicle onto runway 15 right and said braking conditions were fair to poor. The ATIS 
at the time said the runway had a quarter inch of hard packed snow, but was sanded 50 feet on both sides of the center line. The runway was reopened at 5.36 p.m. and 14 planes were able to land before the accident flight. Now let's look at the information that the pilots had available to them to make landing decisions. To get up-to-date information on runway conditions, airports rely on pilot reports, or PIREPs. Five of those 14 flights that landed in the two hours before Flight 30 voluntarily reported on the braking action. The first was a 727, who said fair to poor. An hour later, a 747 reported fair to poor as well, but nine minutes later, a DC-8 reported poor to nil. Then an L-1011 reported, quote, difficulty in achieving runway alignment because of slippery conditions, end quote. 20 minutes later, another 727 landed and reported poor, followed by a DC-10 also reporting poor. Now, I know I said five flights gave reports, and I just listed six planes, but I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> okay. For all those who are counting. I know none of us probably here were, but... Anyways, that last report was just eight minutes before the accident flight attempted to land. All the other pilots that didn't report conditions were later interviewed and said it was slippery or had trouble stopping their planes, to which the NTSB said they believe, quote, pilots should report if they believe that safety is in jeopardy when runway conditions have deteriorated as they had on January 23rd, end quote. So they basically told off the other pilots who didn't report anything as like, why not? At least there were five, pi five six pilots that did. So, it was another century, guys. Just remember. <laughs> yes. Yes. But it was a little different aviation. Yes. It, was it was also it was still early on on, on human factors and and all that. Yeah, yes. absolutely. This was before crew resource management. That's right. So and, this and was the, still... even the human factors were still early. So yeah, they weren't. They didn't implement a lot of the uh, systematic uh, uh, reporting until much later. Right. It this took accidents like these, unfortunately. Yes. Arguably, this accident was one of the catalysts for that. Yep. Mm -hmm. Eight of the 14 were able to turn at taxiway 27, which was 1,900 feet from the end of the runway, which is longer than normal, but they did so successfully and many did not report issues, so investigators believe that the controllers and airport management were misled about the runway conditions. Quote, the board therefore believes that had more pilots reported their assessment of braking action, these parties may have placed more significance on the severe degradation of runway condition and taken more positive action. Moreover, the safety board believes that if additional and more descriptive pilot reports had been made, the landing might not have been attempted. End quote. At this point in the process, it is the controller's responsibility to convey sufficient information to landing flights for them to make informed decisions about whether or not and how to land. This includes conveying braking action reports from previous flights. If they did not have them, the NTSB believed that the tower controllers should prompt crews that just landed for reports rather than wait for them, be proactive and ask them how their landing was, and then tell other flights, particularly heavy flights and big planes, since their stopping power is already less due to, um, well, inertia. Yes, this flight was marked as heavy. Yep. The way controllers got the sixth report was that was the one time that they prompted a crew for a report out of the nine that didn't volunteer the information. Controllers took note of the poor to nil report from the DC-8, and it was distributed through the airport interagency teleprinter circuit, but only the next two flights were told of that report. 
Controllers made no further effort to get breaking action reports, nor did they make sure airport management knew of the deteriorating conditions, nor did they continue to transmit the reports to landing crews. Two of the three planes before the accident flight reported poor braking, but none of those were conveyed to the airport management or to Flight 30. All of which is a deviation from the air traffic controller's handbook. Ta-da! It is thought that the controllers thought that keeping the reports was enough to be in compliance with the handbook, but what is the point of that if you don't do anything with that information? Also, the ATIS x-ray hadn't been updated in two hours and still said breaking conditions were fair to poor, though investigators did say that changing it after the poor to no report would not have helped Flight 30 in time. Well, they didn't get, they wouldn't have gotten that ATIS information. Nope. And maybe that's true, but two hours. Two hours is a long time. It's a yeah, way it long, a really time long time for an ATIS information uh, change. Stuff can change so fast in two hours. Yes. And wasn't the report six was also two hours old? I actually don't know when. I think they said that that was also two hours old. Fantastic. That's, that's strange. Normally now they change them at least once an, once an hour. Yeah, at minimum, yeah. Yeah, once an hour, I think. Yeah, but two hours. I mean, it sounds like the, the, the information was still relevant, actually, because uh, if it is said fair to poor, you always have to assume the, the lowest possible, which would be poor. And if the pilots were aware, that's what I would have used as the... Yeah, yeah. The most but, information I wouldn't assume a fair would be correct. I but agree. now they also have a nil report, which they didn't do it's anything. It's different with. now. They use a number. Yeah, it's different. We don't. Yeah. But at yes. the time. At the time, yes. Again, we're talking about last century. You yeah. guys are a little young for last century. <laughs> hey, we were born last century, but before, yeah, but after this. <laughs> yeah, after this, but before the new century. Yeah, I know. You guys were born before. You know the pterodactyls that I used to fly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now for airport management. Turns out that despite controllers not giving them the breaking action reports, they were still aware of the deteriorating conditions and they were alternating runways for plowing and sanding. Do one, reopen it while closing the other one for the same process. At 5.15 p.m., a plane reported nil braking on runway 4 right, which it is believed prompted the airport to reopen runway 15 right for use to move snow ops to four right, even though one five right still had fair to poor braking action, and they were almost done with four right when flight 30 crashed. Investigators determined that they were doing this alternating process to avoid closing the whole airport. As, you know, we've talked about before, if they don't have to, they're not going to, because right. you lose money, right? When you don't have airplanes well, that are landing. Well, and it's difficult. It puts the airlines in difficult places. Positions because they have to find somewhere else to go, and yeah. they have to reschedule everyone, and it's a pain. So part of me gets it, but the other part's like safety, safety first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and let's not call it crashy. I would call it a landing with less than optimal outcome. But <laughs> that's me. <laughs> yeah, no, I think safety. Yeah, the the the, the fact of uh, of going to an alternate airport has always been the biggest challenge in aviation, especially airlines, because of the complication that it causes and. and there, there always was pressure to the crews to try to complete the flights. I, I can't speculate on how it played in this particular um, accident, which is uh, something that has been talked a lot in, in the past. And at that moment, there was definitely a lot of pressure to complete the flight. So obviously, the crew probably was feeling like they needed to accomplish uh, actually land and, and and terminate that flight right there which might have been a factor 
The operations supervisor did acknowledge in his interview that his normal policy is to reinspect the runway after reports of poor braking action, but he took no such action after the nil and poor reports. So that's all that the flight crew have to work with, and they didn't even really know most of it. Well, and to be fair, if they thought that landing would have been pretty normal, which they could see the runway. They didn't really have a problem seeing the runway. I could see why they wouldn't want to go to another airport. Yes. Because, I mean, from what they understood, they probably would be able to be okay. But it's also hard to say if they had known about a poor to nil breaking, would they still have... Would they have gone... Right. Yes. I get that. You look at it from their perspective, and they can see the runway, they can see the lights... They only have the report of fair to poor from that's two hours old. The ATIS was old. All these and the ATIS is old. And so you look at it from the pilot's perspective and they're thinking, okay, well, you know, several other airplanes have landed ahead of us. We should be okay based on the information I have given to me. They didn't know that it was as bad as it was. In reality, as we're reading it so far, so far and I, I, I'm not really all aware of every, all the other findings that you guys are going to be talking about. Seems like the operation was relatively normal, and not this incident should not have, or accident should not have happened. It it seemed like there wasn't any big red flags going on yet at this point, not except for the, crew. For the fact that it, we found out later that it landed kind of long, right? And that probably is going to be something that you guys so, are going to talk yes. about. So there's a couple of factors. Yes. So the crew knew that the runway was contaminated and had landed and taken off from Newark in similar conditions. Now, flight crews have charts to help them determine from configuration, runway length, runway conditions, weight, wind, etc. if it's safe to land. This is normal. These charts normally take all that information and spit out stopping distance requirements. Normally. Quote, Neither the World Airways Planning and Performance Manual nor the World Airways DC-10 Operations Manual contains landing data in terms of actual stopping distance requirements for a given airplane weight and configuration on either dry or wet surfaces. Rather, a flight crew must estimate the margin of safety on a slippery runway by comparing the airplane's estimated landing gross weight with the maximum gross weight allowed for the landing runway in the airport analysis chart. It's a little odd. Yes. But, but mind you, they actually did do this calculation the way they were trained to do it. With the knowledge that they had. Yes, with the knowledge that they had. That's what that's how they had determined their flap speeds. Yep. And their flap speeds and that's how they determined the uh the auto throttle speeds and then when they were having to set them higher that we'll get to this later, but that's a big part of why they floated long and it wasn't necessarily entirely their fault, although there was a big Lack of training. Well, I guess the only red flag, let's get back to the red flags. Uh, that red flag mm-hmm. was the alpha call out, which it, yes. it sounded like they had to fly faster than they anticipated. So that obviously should have, it could have been, but so if they easier had... said than, 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 and it's not a big one. 10 knots doesn't seem like a lot. So here's the interesting thing. If they had actually reversed the calculation once they had set the speed based on what the computer was telling them, they originally calculated at 365,000 gross pounds, and that's what they had done their calculations based on. But when the computer told them alpha, and they were adjusting for the 22 degrees of flaps, they had to go up to 174 knots on the, the auto throttle. That means that the computer actually calculated for 415,000 pounds on the airplane. Difference. That's a big difference. And then when they were on, when they set 35 degrees of flaps, and they were on final. They were at 158 knots on the com- the computer told them after the alpha setting at 150. 
So they went to 158 knots. That meant that the airplane calculated them at 440,000 pounds, which is well beyond their allowable minimum landing weight. So did the computer change the weight that it was using to calculate it? That's the confusing part to me. I don't know why the computer was miscalculating like this. They think it was just out of tolerance. They think the computer was miscalculating. And that's true. And then you said that one of the two computers was not functioning. Yes, one, the number one autothrottle system. And so the reason that that's so impactful is that you need that redundancy to check one with the other. And by not having one, they couldn't verify what was wrong. Ah, with... we're starting to come on. So they knew, <laughs> yes. So they knew, they had known when they landed at Newark, actually, about the problem with the number two autothrottle, that it was reading high. Because they had gotten alpha readings on that approach as well, but they but didn't... they had done they had done the landing normally, and actually, the the first officer had said that he was going to write that up when they got to Newark, but he never did. So they knew about the issue, and when they were approaching Boston, they should have known that it was reading high. The thing is, is that they still relied a little too heavily on that autothrottle system versus adjusting the speeds for what they knew on their calculations. Uh-huh. And they hadn't reversed the calculations on the number two auto to find the out what the computer was not oh. doing the right calculation. Right. I, I, might be, I, I might be, you know, jumping the gun here, but I, I, do, do they know what the actual weight of the airplane was on landing? Do we have a number? I do not. I do not. Okay. I can see if we can find it though. You guys were talking about the 365, which that could be, but because that's really interesting. Because if the air, obviously the air, the computer was calculating at a higher speed, it calculate uh, sorry higher weight it calculates a higher speed. So that puts them really in a bad situation. That yes. sounds like we're we're trying to. What investigators determined was that the weight was probably closer to the three sixty five because they would have felt on takeoff if it was more than that. It mm-hmm. would have shifted the CG and things would have felt weird. Does that yeah. make sense? You're yeah. looking at me. Okay. So. Sorry, I'm jumping the gun. I'm sure you're going to have information. <laughs> I actually, no, no, it's okay. I actually didn't plan to bring that up at all, so I'm glad that you did. So, from here, investigators then evaluated the crew's efforts to minimize stopping distance. They determined that, that the captain should have disengaged the auto throttle when approaching flare and changed the thrust schedule so that they crossed the threshold at 150 knots and then aimed for a point nearer to the threshold. The VASI system, or the Visual Approach Slope Indicator, is configured to aid a plane in landing at 1,183 feet down the runway from the displaced threshold. However, big planes have a tendency of touching down hundreds of feet short when using the VASI because of their size versus the VASI configuration. So DC-10 and L-1011 crews were told to disregard them entirely once 200 feet above the runway. What's the point of having them then? Like, for the other planes. Well, I get that, I use but them. yeah, like you should have lights that work for everybody. Well, no, that's the problem is they they can't they can't you know switch them from one airplane to another and right works great for example general aviation because it will put you right on that mark and then for a bigger airplane because they're taller you know you got to remember if they're flaring you know these DC tens are basically at my cruising altitude while they're flaring you know yeah. so <laughs> you know they're so much higher. That their landing gear is going to actually touch up short. Yeah, that's, think that's about to explain yeah. what why they're going to end up being yeah. short is because. And they, you think about like a 747, they're you know they're a whole extra deck higher than a normal airplane, yep. even than a normal wide body. And when they're when they're flaring to land, I mean you're talking they're almost ten stories in the sky. 
still when they touch down. The, the, the pilots are almost 10 stories high. So that means they have to anticipate being that much higher than everybody else. Yep. So that's why they were told to just don't look at the Vassies once you're 200 feet above the runway. Well, right. and talk about another thing about the Vassies. The problem is it is excellent if you're within the range. So you might have a four light system and you can see, you know, two reds and one one white. As long as you're there, you kind of have an idea where you're on a slope. But if you have all whites or all red, you have no idea if you're way high or way low. Yeah, again. you have right. no scale to gauge with. Right. So. But in any case, the captain did regard, disregard the Vassies as he was told to do. But this also meant that he didn't have basically any reference during low visibility for how to aim to the touchdown point. That was his only reference. There's no, like, the thousand foot marks to go. None of that. Mm -hmm. So he had no idea actually where he landed, as Nick had mentioned. And it was his first time landing on runway 15 right at Logan. Oh, well, that's not helpful either. Nope. This, coupled with a slightly high speed, led to a late flare and landing further down the runway. Normally, stopping distance for that weight of a DC-10 and that configuration, etc., on a dry runway was 2,392 feet. Investigators added 440 feet for their slightly high speed, and now we're at 2,832 feet. It's understandable how they believe that more than 6,000 feet of runway left was enough, even in wet conditions. You know, that's more than double. Yes. There was no action to abort the landing, and the NTSB did not blame them for that, as the information that they had at the time did not necessitate such an action. They also found that the crew was a little slow in applying certain slowing actions, such as thrust reversers, compared to an earlier DC-10, but doesn't necessarily blame the crew for that, as controlling the plane at touchdown directionally was difficult. Right, so they were focused on just keeping the airplane on the center line or on the runway anyways. Yeah. There was human error in that it feels weird. You don't know what to do immediately. Right. The next step in evaluating the crew required quantifying just how bad braking conditions were. They took the data from both this FDR as well as Northwest Flight 42, which was the DC-1040 that landed seven minutes earlier. They found the maximum effective braking coefficient to be 0.08, which was about on point for smooth, unsanded, clear ice. Basically, not a lot of braking. Yeah. Yeah. Investigators took that number and calculated what distance Flight 30 would have needed to stop with their configuration. The answer was 8,390 feet. So if they would have touched down where the runway started, they might have stood a chance. Yes, pretty much. I think the chart in the report said that the runway, if they had touched down at the displaced threshold, they had 9,191 feet. Barely enough. Right. Yeah. yeah, so barely enough. But they would have stopped. Yes. But the airplanes before were able to make the landing, which is interesting. But they uh, didn't well, float as long as they right. didn't. They didn't float. Well, they had different configuration. Right, right. Um, and conditions were deteriorating. They were getting worse. So yes. obviously, if you're the pilot of this airplane, you know, you assume all the other airplanes landed safely. You probably would have been in that sense of confidence that you'll be okay. That's probably what Yep. also played... Into the uh, yeah, it's that um, mind. that confirmation bias, yes, as it's known, where you hear of other airplanes making it without issue. You know that maybe conditions aren't great, but that kind of confirmation from similar type airplanes completing the landings without issue, you kind of figure, okay, I'm experienced enough in this, we should be okay, and you kind of that that confirmation bias where you lean, yep, we're going to be okay. 
yeah. without actually taking all factors into account per se. Um, the other thing that the NTSB mentioned, which I actually didn't write down anywhere, is that the crew did select 35 degrees of flaps to land. Yes, this which... was not. This was against World Airways policies. How, how come? What, what would have been the... so maximum was 50. But the captain elected to use 35 because of potential wind shear, for one. Two, they were doing a non-precision approach. So if he right. needed to correct thrust in any capacity, having flaps at 50 wouldn't have helped his cause. Yes. Oh, no, that so, really slows down. Yeah. So the, the NTSB actually found that even though it was against World Airways policies... He made was, a good decision. He actually made the right decision with the information he had they based d- on the airplane. They did find if he had used 50 degrees of flaps, he probably would have landed okay, but... They completely supported his decision to use 35 degrees of flaps. Investigators determined that if the crew had touched down slower and applied braking functions quicker, they would have been able to stop on the runway. However, quote, the safety board's analysis indicates that while it is possible to land the airplane on the runway, the runway surface had become so slippery that unless the landing was made within or very close to the ideal parameters of touchdown distances and airspeeds, and unless the pilots duplicated or nearly duplicated ideal control application during the landing roll, the possibility of stopping on the runway was at best difficult and at worst marginal. While the safety board believes that the manner in which the captain flew the approach and landing was causal to the accident, given the narrow operational tolerances required to land and stop on runway 15 right, the safety board also finds the runway conditions and the factors which led to a decision to land flight 30 to have been causal. There so, it is. It wasn't a clear cut. Nope, never is. Except for... Almost never. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You, you, would love to, you would love in aviation to have nothing more than that big old red light that come in front of you and say something is wrong. Yeah, there's a few that will ever be as clear cut as, say, U.S. Bangla or... <laughs> flagship. Um, flagship or... Those ones are like truly pilot error beyond belief. Those were... Those were the dumb uh, dumb. Those were horrendous. So we're going to take a break. Take a break at a break. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Okay, so we're back. So now we're going to talk about the findings. There were 30 findings. We're not going to go through oh. all 30. Yeah, that's, that's a lot oh. more than normal. <laughs> Most reports are usually somewhere between like 11 and 25. That's pretty much what I usually find. This one was 30, which is like, whoa. What, that's, what what, you normally, what 30? that's what you normally find? Find, yes. <sighs> but, but in any case, so this, is, this was definitely well above average. And, and for me, it seemed like it was a little bit extreme. But some of their points are pretty good. So we're going to go through a handful of these. I've narrowed them down. So the NTSB found that although the ambient temperature at the time of the accident was above freezing, ground surfaces were cold and covered with hard-packed snow. Continuing precipitation was freezing on contact to form glaze ice on the snow. So we already kind of knew that, but that's what the crew didn't understand or know much about yet until they touched down. It was a slippery donut, apparently. Yes. Slippery, slippery again, donut. Again, icing, good for bakers. Yes. <laughs> They found that the airport snow plan was in effect and operational runways had been alternated during the afternoon while crews plowed and sanded closed runways to improve conditions. So 
this is key. I mean, they had their their plan in place for for snow removal and for the conditions present. Did they only have two runways at Logan at this time? Uh, no, they had four at minimum. Um, right now they have six, but two of them are kind of weird because they're one-direction runways and they're also too small to use for any airliners. Okay. So basically they had two. And they were closing them off and on to remove snow and stuff. Mm-hmm. Correct. What I found kind of odd, so I, you remember I said that they closed runway 15 right at 5 o'clock to plow in sand, and then they reopened it at 536 and moved over to runway 4 right, and that they were almost done with runway 4 right when the accident occurred. What time did the accident occur? It was at 736 and 40 seconds, I think. So two hours they had spent on runway 4 right. But only 36 minutes on runway 15, right? Interesting. They didn't really talk about it a whole lot. And I'm like, what? That's a little weird. Yeah. I think they were trying to get their main runway back operational. But uh, yeah, that wasn't going well. Well, and then the other thing I thought was odd when they calculated the braking coefficient, it was that of unsanded ice. Yep. So, so did they even lay it down? They found that runway 15 right had been reopened two hours before the accident after it had been plowed and sanded. Two members of the snow committee drove a four-wheel drive vehicle down the runway and assessed braking action as fair to poor before it was reopened again. We kind of stated that earlier, but even they kind of proved to themselves that they weren't... It wasn't great. It wasn't great even after plowing and sanding. Yeah. So, mm, not a great job. They found that only five of 14 pilots landing on runway 15 right during the two-hour period before the accident volunteered braking action reports. One reported poor to nil conditions about 38 minutes before the accident, and the two who landed ahead of flight 30 reported poor conditions. The last pilot of a Northwest DC-10 who landed eight minutes before flight 30 reported to ground control that he had experienced compressor stalls during low-speed reverse thrust application. The local, the local controller was aware of the difficulty encountered by the Northwest DC-10, but did not pass on this information to Flight 30. So another one of those key things, it's not necessarily that the information coming from the Northwest flight is that key in particular, but it's more they're kind of more leaning on the fact that the air traffic controller didn't say anything subsequently to another DC-10 that was approaching the airport. Like, hey, another plane, just like you, experienced this. Beware. They didn't do that. Yeah, they didn't say anything about braking conditions at any point in time to them. They kind of relied on them getting the condition reports from the ATIS. Which was two hours old. Yes. They found that the tower controllers failed to take the initiative to request pilot braking action reports during the continuing precipitation which caused deterioration of runway conditions despite the known icing condition of the runway. So they found that the the tower controllers weren't requesting the information, so, you know, it was being volunteered by some of the pilots, but they had only requested from one out of so many flights the information about braking conditions. So that is, they, a, it is a pretty important thing when conditions are that bad. Well, and they well, didn't and have a full picture of what it was like. No. no you and only it, get a handful and they're not right next to each other. How are you going to know? Exactly. And those reports were getting worse. So they knew it was getting worse, but they couldn't measure how much worse. Right. They found that the ATIS field condition report had not been updated for two hours before the accident and indicated braking action fair to poor, although a poor to nil and poor reports had been given by pilots. So again, that thing about the ATIS wasn't updated and they they really should have had a more up-to-date, more accurate report. But 
This goes along with terminology, which we'll talk about in a little while. They found that neither approach nor local controllers passed on the latest report conditions of braking action to the pilots of several flights, including Flight 30. The failure to transmit this information may have influenced the pilot's decision to land. So because they didn't have the, all the information that the air traffic controllers necessarily had, they didn't have enough information to maybe make the right decision in landing. They found that the ATC handbook requires local controllers to transmit braking conditions to arriving flights when braking action reports have been received. So that is the one thing that is prominent, and this is probably why they place the most blame on the airport, that and not clearing the runways, but that the air traffic controllers did not pass on these braking conditions when it's part of their handbook. It's part of their, their operations. In 1982. In 1982, was... yeah. Because we've got to remember, we're still talking about a, a long time ago. And yeah. I'm curious. I'm just curious yeah. if it was already. But that's basically what they're saying here. The, the ATC handbook requires local controllers to transmit braking conditions as they arrive, you know, to arriving flights as they come in from previous flights. So they should have been passing on this information all the time. These days, you really, it, it's it's kind of second nature for them. They just keep oh, passing on whatever the yeah. worst condition is they got to report on. And they tell you who done it. And how long ago? Well, so. and for example, if I report uh, an airspeed drop on final, they, yeah. I, I hear the traffic controller asking the other pilots if they heard what I said or they will repeat it. And then eventually it goes into the 80s very quickly. So right. just to give a, a practical example of what I've seen. That's a good point. If the crews were, if the pilots were reporting braking conditions, why didn't Flight 30 hear it? They might have been on the other frequency. Yeah, yeah, it might have been on a different frequency. What they do know is that there was a couple of times where braking conditions were reported out loud by air traffic controllers but or by flights, and multiple times Flight 30 was on a different frequency okay. almost immediately before or after it. Yeah, they probably Great. were only on tower frequency for maybe a couple of minutes at yes, most. Yes, pretty much. And, and it sounded like the airplane that landed before them was several minutes. So Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Yep. They found that the pilot of Flight 30 used the number two auto throttle system for airspeed control during the approach and landing. The number one auto throttle system was inoperative, thereby precluding speed comparisons between the two systems, which is important because they also found that the auto throttle system is designed so as not to accept a minimum speed below that which provides an established stall margin. The minimum speed acceptable to the number two system was eight knots above the World Airways approach speed for the airplane's weight. 13 knots above the reference speed, which is the basis for establishing runway distance criteria. The reason the the auto throttle system would not accept the low speed was not determined. So there's the real answer. They don't exactly know why the auto throttle 2 system was reading, that, high. reading high. But well, they, they, they knew that they know a, that it was out of tolerance. They knew that a failure on the on the first system. Yep. But that was probably deactivated then, right? Yep. They, it was considered in op. It was marked as in op before so, before this entire flight. But they knew the, about the, that. The, the the number two system should have been functioning perfectly, probably yes. according to the manual. Obviously, they determined there was a a discrepancy there, probably. Yep. Yep. Pretty much, and they couldn't determine why the discrepancy existed, but they knew that it did. What are you talking earlier about the weight? calculated that were different and right and be it that the weight calculations for both of those were shifting so much that the computer was adjusting for way higher weights that that means that the uh, the system was more than likely not functioning properly it was out of tolerance well then i have never seen such thing on an airplane ever 
something out of tolerance. <laughs> Ever. It's an airplane after Ever. all. They're perfect. Yeah. <laughs> oh, all the time. Every time. They found that the minimum 35 degree flap speed acceptable to the number two autothrottle system exceeded the allowable speed tolerance for use of the number two autothrottle system by six knots. Doesn't sound like a lot, but... Mm, but it is. It is. Because especially when you're talking about weights and then their, their inertia touching down on ice. That's a lot. Well, it was 440 feet dry, imagine, on clear, smooth, yeah, unsanded ice. Yes. They found that the airplane had achieved a stabilized descent along a normal profile and crossed the displaced threshold of runway 15 right at a normal height, but at the higher than normal airspeed controlled by the autothrottle system. So, again, it's that airspeed. They came in too fast. They were at the right altitude on the glide slope, but they came in just way too fast. Especially for the conditions. Mm -hmm. They found that the pilot did not raise the airplane's nose excessively, but the higher than normal speed produced a longer than normal flare distance. The airplane touched down about 2,800 feet beyond the displaced threshold, with no more than 6,380 feet remaining for stopping. Can you explain what flare is for those of our listeners who um, don't know? Yes. So I like the way that actually somebody taught it to Brendan, and he passed the information on to Yeah, me. it's something that you shoot it's, in the air and makes well, a really bright light. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's, oh, it's wrong flare. It's not that flare. <laughs> it's, the, it's the other flare. Um, so a flare is when, when an airplane comes into land, they actually pull the nose up to reduce airspeed and allow the airplane to actually touch down on its own, essentially. You're, you're allowing the airplane, I like the way that it was taught to Brendan, which is you're not uh, telling the airplane to touch down, you're transitioning the airplane to the ground. So it's rather than thinking about it as a... A multi-step process is almost more of a one smooth action where you, you're reducing throttle and pulling the nose back to not necessarily stall the airplane, but allow the airplane to set itself gently on the runway. Well, you're changing that transition from a yeah, descent. Yeah, you're transitioning to, from to, a, to, uh, uh, a descent to a touchdown, basically. Right. To, yeah. to, uh, a stable, uh, to uh, basically a horizontal flight that... Right. As the speed you know decreases, then you touch down. So, right. like you said, when you transition in this flare, and in, in, in our case, it sounds like they didn't flare very much. And I'm wondering if it has to do with the increased speed. So it, it is. Did, it, it, it did is. not need to flare as much to to transition from a descent to a basically uh, no descent flight. And right. A, and a, so yeah, he didn't have to do as much, probably because they had a little more airspeed over the wings. And so they noted that he did not raise the nose that much, not excessively, but part of the reason why the captain more than likely thought that he touched down within the normal range, that 1,000 to 1,500 foot range, was because the time it took for them to touch down may have, in their minds, been about normal from the moment of flare to the moment of touchdown. That's a good point. However, when you're moving faster, you cover distance a lot faster. So in their minds, if it takes, you know, they're pretty used to maybe five six seconds of flare then that five to six seconds of flare at their actual approach speed would have been significantly less distance than at the speed they actually and when you're going out of 50 knots you cover ground pretty darn fast you do cover ground pretty darn fast <laughs> that was one of the drawback of the dc-10s I, I have friends that were pilots and they told me that they had to fly faster yeah on approach so yeah i mean most airplanes these days vref is like 140 you know, they're talking 150 and then 158. They were landing at 160 knots. That's just way too fast. Wow. You know? And so that's, yeah, that's really high. Most airplanes these days, it's way significantly lower. 
touchdown most airplanes. I don't know exactly, but it's usually in the range of 120 to 140. Right. Well, there's also, you know, modern airplanes are, tend to be a, a little bit better. Yes. The, the wings are, have improved. Yes, so they're definitely. Yeah. Transition. yeah, exactly. The, from fast to slower, it's a better. Right. It's a better about that. Yeah, the DC-10 notoriously also had a very big blocky wing. They produced an enormous amount of uh, vortices. They had uh, wing wingtip vortices worse than almost any other airplane in the sky when they were produced. So they actually had a lot of drag, post-aircraft drag, you know, post-leading-edge uh, mm -hmm. drag, which wasn't necessarily good for the airframe, and that's part of why they had to fly them faster, because they were producing so much drag that they had to wake overcome some drag. Yep, the wake turbulence. Wake yeah. turbulence. They found that ineffective friction between Flight 30's tires and the runway surface resulted in low decelerative forces, which slowed the airplane to only 49 knots by the time it departed the end of the runway. So That's still quite a bit of speed. Though. That's a if lot of speed. If you think about it, 49 yeah. knots, uh, it probably could have taken another few hundred feet to slow it down. So, and it's and exactly what it comes down. It sounds like they should have had another couple thousand feet. Yep. Yes. Safe On the ice, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, 49 knots, that's almost 60 miles an hour. In a car, you know, you think 60 miles an hour, it takes a little while to slow down even a car from 60 miles an hour, snow, yeah. let alone an airplane. Let alone 365,000 pounds. Yeah, exactly. They found that the runway surface was so slippery that stopping the airplane on the runway was difficult and may have been marginal regardless of crew performance. So that's where they kind of take that, yes, okay, the crew had a problem also, and that's another factor in the accident. But really, even if they hadn't had that problem, they're not entirely sure the airplane would have stopped in time. Nope. Even in the best conditions? Yep. Yes, even mm. in the best conditions. They found that the pilot's use of a 35-degree flap setting for the approach was not in accordance with World Airways flight operations procedures for landing on short or contaminated runways, but was appropriate in this case based on the wind condition and type of approach being conducted. They found that it was not known for several hours after the termination of the rescue operation that two passengers were missing. Passengers were not accurately accounted for because one passenger's ticket coupon had not been lifted when boarding and, although counted, when deplaning, he had not been included in the total passenger count. Also, a fireman from the rescue group had been admitted to a hospital with passengers from the accident. He had been counted as a passenger. Oh hmm. my lord. So their counts were highly so inaccurate. The, the numbers almost matched what the manifest said because Almost, of these two yes. other people. And yeah, because there was one that didn't have it, didn't get counted, and then one the fireman. Uh, fireman that did get counted. So their count actually evened Macro, out. Yeah, okay. But the the reality is... They is didn't there was realize there were these two people that were gone. Two people missing. and that's hours after. It's unfortunate. Maybe that's why they never found them. If they would have started the search earlier, maybe they could have found them. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But at that point, they could be in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> So I glanced over a lot of the findings that were in here because a lot of them actually have to do with the same thing. And I just wanted to touch on them more as a topic than as reading them. And those are the friction testing, which the FAA, you know, they found that the FAA doesn't do enough friction testing for conditions of runways and that there needs to be a more standardized way of doing friction testing, which comes up in the recommendations. And then mandatory braking action reports. Again, they repeat that a few more times about mandatory braking it's action a big deal. reporting to... Oh. Arriving airplanes. Takes accidents like this to find out. Yep. Yep. Okay. Buckle up. This is long. It is long. The probable cause. 
The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of the accident was the minimal braking effectiveness on the ice-covered runway, the failure of the Boston Logan International Airport Management to exercise maximum efforts to assess the condition of the runway to assure continued safety of landing operations, the failure of air traffic control to transmit the most recent pilot reports of breaking action to the pilot of Flight 30, and the captain's decision to accept and maintain an excessive airspeed derived from the autothrottle speed control system during the landing approach, which caused the airplane to land about 2,800 feet beyond the runway's displaced threshold. You know, they're really bad at run-on sentences. <sighs> that was, was all one sentence. That was one sentence. It was the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I'm not done. <laughs> There's one more. Contributing to the accident were the inadequacy of the present system of reports to convey reliable braking effectiveness information and the absence of provisions in the Federal Aviation Regulations to require, one, airport management to measure the slipperiness of the runways using standardized procedures and to use standardized criteria in evaluating and reporting braking effectiveness and in making decisions to close runways, two, operators to provide flight crews and other personnel with information necessary to correlate braking effectiveness on contaminated runways with airplane stopping distances, and three, extended minimum runway lengths for landing on runways which adequately take into consideration the reduction of braking effectiveness due to ice and snow. That's a mouthful tip. <laughs> What's interesting is that they bring it up as a federal aviation regulations. These are things they think that should be regulated a little more closely. And, yeah, like you said, it takes an accident like this for them to maybe do something like that. And what's important is that they did actually do a lot of these things. Can we also talk about the fact that they use slipperiness as a formal oh, word? Oh, I thought that was fantastic. As a, as a formal <laughs> word in their probable cause rather than friction? Yeah, slipperiness, excellent uh, for ice skaters. Yes. Not so much <laughs> not in aviation. So much. Yes, not so much in aviation. <laughs> Patricia Goldman, vice chairman, dissented. So she did not like it. Interesting. Really? What, what did she give a, a what she thought? She submitted a seven-page dissent. Wow. Oh my God. She did. Oh, she's the one that said the pilots' flying skills were inadequate. So she's the one that believes. Yeah, the pilots were. Ah, so there's. I think she didn't want to. Didn't want to point the finger at the airport. Then I guess. Yeah. Yes. So I I kind of understand why because actually there's a whole little portion in there which I read briefly about. The air, about World Airways training, and then let alone the operations. So it's not necessarily even that she would point the finger at the pilots specifically, but more the fact that they had a lack of training for conditions like this and situations like this. She and did say that she believed that the captain's decision to land using 35-degree flaps was improper and unjustified. Hard to say. Okay. Hard to say, because the rest of the board seemed to disagree with her. So it's really, you know... This is one of those things where you don't know what the perfect situation was, what the perfect answer to this condition was. They, The captain was trying to do the best job he could with the information given to him. And maybe it would have changed his decision, his decision if he knew that breaking condition was much worse than he expected and that another DC-10 had had issues before they touched down. If he had known that, maybe he would have changed his decision and landed with more flaps or... Yeah. Gone to a different airport. Gone to a different airport. Other thing she says, the captain illegally flew below MDA. Captain. What? Oh, well, no, because they had runway in sight. So the first officer and the flight engineer did. He did not, apparently. But it, he said he could see the runway. According so he to... could see it off of his left side at MDA, is what he claimed. 
Yep. He apparently never verbalized this during the flight, but that's what he claimed later in an interview. And what they don't know is when he actually saw it. She blames him for flaring late, did not know where he was on the runway, and should have executed a go-around. There you go. Then again, they're trying to blame the pilot. See, I think that's a little excessive. I think with everything that he had, he made the the best decision he could make. And he didn't realize how far down the runway he was. Well, he had no indicators. Let's not forget that going around is never a bad option, but... No, no. of course not. You can always go around. But the the biggest thing is it doesn't sound like if the pilot was making... It was feeling like it was in a a situation out of his control, so... Other things, flight crew failed to activate ground spoilers immediately. The captain's reversing technique was improper. The captain failed to apply brakes properly. The probable cause of World Flight 30 accident was pilot error, not the condition of the runway. See, this is where my thought process goes to similarly to what happened with Sully and U.S. Air Flight 1549. Because human factor has to be taken into consideration because when they landed on the runway, it didn't feel right to the captain and they realized there weren't any spoilers. But you need to give them time to make decisions. You can't just assume they're going to do everything perfectly when they get down there. Right. Especially so, if there's something weird going on. So. Right. I think a part of the reason probably the board didn't agree with her is because of this human factors portion. Which, again, was kind of not necessarily a new concept, but wasn't a trained concept, per se, in aviation yet. And so that building to that crew resource management, which really came around ni- 1991... That's when they actually really had this foundation that they could train human factors on, and you could take away a little bit more of that human factor when it comes to blaming in the accident. Because he he did he did the calculations in his mind, and he did the calculations out loud, and he discussed with the crew, and he did a lot of things that in crew resource management are actually pretty good techniques. And so he made the decision as best as he could. They knew about the faulty autothrottle system, and maybe the one thing that they really should have done differently is not relied on it if they hadn't relied on the autothrottle system and that he had stuck with his speeds he had planned for they actually probably would have been fine been okay yeah there's a better chance anyways yep so there's you know we don't know for sure but that's kind of you know placing blame on one or the other to me feels also a little bit loaded it's that combination of factors yeah to me it it seems speaking of that that they uh, there's this general assumption that they had come up with a procedure that should be uh, all effective for everybody, but we need to remember he wasn't familiar with the airport. Right, he had you know, never the, landed on this runway before. The, right, the situation was a little bit, let's say, unusual. I don't think that happens all that often that you have a configuration like that, especially yeah. the problem with this airplane. And there's this always this assumption, I think, or at least it was at that time that if it was put in the manuals then every time it would be the same and apparently it's it, this was outside and it wasn't recognized and there wasn't a procedure to recognize right the, the the differences so yes so they did something really strange with this report that I've not seen before and that is they revised it and they actually removed the recommendations that they normally had in the recommendation portion and all they said was see appendix m Oh god. And they attached an like a nine page document that isn't just about the recommendations, it's this whole lead in to the recommendations. 
So in kind of glancing over that and getting to the recommendations, most of the recommendations have to do with the airport's friction testing and coming up with a new terminology for Mm -hmm. these breaking action reports rather than poor or nil. They still use some similar terminologies, but there's a much more accurate system. And then the other big thing they changed was they wanted to make sure that these breaking action reports are passed on to the pilots and that the air traffic controllers are constantly checking to make sure that the crews have this kind of information, that they have the the information about the worst possible condition, basically, so that they make the right decisions, because obviously we don't like when these things happen. And they still do, but they're usually not so severe. Again, I'm kind of glancing over the recommendations because they're worded very strange. But a lot of them have to do, again, with the friction. They wanted a a better way of tracing friction, which they did do. Eventually, there are now standard ways of actually tracking friction on runways, both dry, wet, contaminated, whatever they are. And then they also hit hard on the breaking action reports again, which that has changed. It is now significantly... it It was in the ATC handbook before, but now it is like... It is a key thing. When information about runway conditions and weather conditions speaks to potential safety problem, air traffic controllers really have to make it available. They have to make it available, but they also have to make it their kind of their focus when it comes to guiding traffic. And then they also hit hard on the auto throttle system on the DC 10 and the way that it's written into the manuals, because specifically it told them that if the, the only time that it was not okay to use the auto throttle system was if the airplane was in full auto land mode. So if the full, if the airplane was in full auto land mode and one of the auto throttle systems wasn't working, one of the two systems wasn't working, they weren't allowed to use it. Otherwise they were allowed to use it Hmm. Yeah. in every other situation. So like in this situation where he was manually flying the airplane and they weren't in auto land mode because they didn't have an instrument landing system to use, then the airplane was allowed to have this auto throttle system on And I can kind of agree with that, that that maybe isn't the best course of action, especially when you're talking about the auto throttle system on the DC-10 was unique to the DC-10 and wasn't necessarily a standard type auto throttle system. It functioned a little strange. And then for them to also know that it was out of tolerance, that's the only time I have really a problem even with the crew. It isn't even necessarily the decision to land that I have a problem with. It's the decision to use the The auto auto throttle. throttle. Knowing yeah. that it was out of tolerance. And they could have just manually flown it without the auto throttle. Yeah, that, that, that could possibly be a, 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 a factor that could be attributed to the pilot. So, uh, um, yeah, I can see where that should have been possibly something that he could have taken over. But at the same time, and maybe his workload was to the point where he found that using the auto throttle was maybe helping him. Yes. Man- manage the workload, so that might be... It's hard to guess. You know, we can't be in his mind, so it's hard. Right, and that I agree. So that came a lot with it, and then uh, updating ATIS information a lot more regularly. Which we um, already discussed. Especially, happens. yes, that definitely happens, especially after you get a new report. You Basically, you have to update the ATIS to the worst possible condition reported, is what the, the FAA wants, because then they want to make sure that pilots know you know, say whether it be runway condition or weather condition, icing, uh, uh, wind shear, anything like that. If it changes and it's worse than the previous ATIS, then it should be updated as soon as possible. That's another big thing they want to change. And that does pretty much happen these days. You know, it, it's still a little bit uh, human reliant on those changes. So it's not necessarily that it would be a perfect system, but it is 
it is done to the best of ATC's ability. Another one of the things they wanted to do was change, for example, World Airways procedure on calculating landing distance. You know, and actually spit out a distance? Yes. So anymore these days, actually, the computers are really good at calculating this for the pilots anyways, but you're still trained to calculate that distance typically. Manually, Manually, yes, based on weight and speeds, all those things. All the different factors. But anymore, like you look at you look at airplanes like the Airbus A three fifty, and the A three fifty can even spit out exactly which taxiway it plans to depart the runway at, and it can even apply the braking automatically at a certain it, it knows, you know, you touch down at the correct point, and from there it can automatically apply the correct amount of braking to exit the runway at said taxiway. It's really impressive. That's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's becoming obsolete. Pretty much. I mean, Airbus <laughs> even they even got the A350 recently to taxi and take off completely on its own. So at this point, it's like, yeah, we're more of monitoring, more for monitoring than uh, actually flying well, the airplane. That's important though, but, because electronics do malfunction. Yeah, and you They're, don't want someone not to be in the cockpit if something goes wrong. It's <laughs> going to be incredibly hard actually to make that full transition from human to computerized. Well, at least we'll be always a pilot in there there will be yes there will always be some form of a pilot in there and they will always have to be trained to somebody's got to turn the on switch on and the on switch off as well. yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly uh so that pretty much covers it they the biggest things for them were creating committees to talk about runway friction and being better about clearing runways and what runways to use and what conditions and continue grooving runways because they were doing it at the time so there's there's a lot of factors but they really hit hard on the big things that contributed to this accident and i do think they did a good job in recommending what to change and a lot of those things have changed so really you can feel a lot safer these kinds of things just don't happen not at this level anymore i mean every once in a while there is an airplane slide off a runway when it gets snowy or wet but that there's usually some different factor that plays into that that's not thought of or human factor you know that's always an element. The human factor. Take the pilot out of the airplane. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So that was World Airways Flight 70? 30. Ah, oh, dang it. 30 heavy 30. if you really want to be specific. The whole time in this report, I was kind of glancing over the fact that Me it too. wrote 30H on everything <laughs> because the H is for heavy. Yeah. It was Flight 30 heavy. So... Thank you, as always, for watching. Thank you for being here, Al. No, thank you for having me. And contributing. Yes, thanks. It's always nice to have people on. Yes, we have uh, hopefully future episodes, maybe distantly because of the way our schedule is, but future episodes planned that we would like you to be part of. And then, love it. uh, be fun. And then you're also, of course, welcome to come be part of any episode. You're in town. Yep. Stop by. So, as always, thank you for listening. Thank you to our patrons for contributing to us and supporting us. Again, make sure you check out the newsletter. Subscription information's on the website. Check out uh, the listener episodes if you'd like to submit a listener episode. The listener episodes for March will be when you felt lucky to be on an airplane, to fly on an airplane, to go be going on a trip, etc. Or you were lucky to avoid a situation. Yeah. Maybe you almost crashed. Hopefully yeah. not. In any but... case, whether you were flying, not flying, and you felt lucky that you landed. <laughs> yeah, let's not use crash. Let's say, you know, conclusion of a flight with, uh, with, <laughs> yeah, with undesirable, uh-huh. undesirable circumstances. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that will be the theme for March. And then, again, if you want to ask us a question about anything, that information is also on the website. 
And stay safe, stay healthy, friends, and we'll catch you next week. Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.